So, Alvaro, I've got you back. Someone I've managed to convince to return who is not from Washington. How are you, man? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Not bad, not bad. Uh, yeah, you're well rested. Uh, I, I'm not trying to laugh at you or be critical in any way, um, but you did have a little 15 minutes siesta that lasted 60 minutes. A little, so that's... A little Spanish nap, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Spanish nap, wonderful term. Okay, so last time we we were quite serious, actually very serious, Alvaro. And um, so this time I think it's right that we are equally serious in some ways in in the topics that we attach ourselves to. Um, so today it's going to be a bit of a discussion about democracy, essentially, and uh, also touching a little bit on socialism. Um, but uh, in addition to that, from the starting point of the French Revolution and the importance of the French Revolution in the development of these political ideas around Europe. Um, yeah, do, do you want any sort of starting shots of your own to sort of throw into that? Well, I think I will leave it up to you to make the introduction um, and, then, and then try to jump in. Okay. All right. All right. Okay. Um, so yeah, w without putting too much detail into it, um, just to sort of set the uh, set the scene as it was in in the uh, days before the French Revolution. So there was a lot of what you would call social turmoil. Yeah. So the preceding 100 years uh, was perhaps uh, a boon uh, with regards to European identity and growing international relations. Um, Latin was used as the language of diplomacy, um, but by a certain period in the middle of the 19th or the 18th century, excuse me, things weren't quite going very well. This is partially down to um, enlightened thinkers, so people who promoted that um, what is important is the greatest good of all people, as opposed to the narrow interests of the elite. Um, and this is something which is quite interesting for me because it's similar to the situation we find ourselves in today. And also, just to be uh, quite clear, um, based upon some of the reading uh, that I was doing for the background here, uh, some of these enlightened thinkers uh, actually began to promote these ideas in the American Revolution, which had a role to play in the French Revolution. Um, and also because a lot of these people were actually Masons and obviously Masons have quite a bad press, um, but I'm not going to defend uh, Masons because you know, they're more than capable of doing that. Um, and you know, I don't really know enough about it to be able to do so. But in, in the um, sort of the preceding years of the French Revolution, there was a lot of uh, unhappiness uh, with the political power of the church, the power of the aristocracy. Um, people wanted to have uh, more of a say uh, in things. They wanted legal equality. They wanted to be treated fairly. And uh, a big part of the problem was that the monarchy had spent so much money fighting the Brits in America that they found themselves in a bad state. So they needed to um, sort of redefine the way that they did things. They needed to, you know, changed their system of taxation. They needed to make it more efficient. Yeah. Um, aristocrats wanted new political rights as well um, in their sort of not quite battle, but they were not happy with royal power. Uh, the middle classes wanted a greater political voice to match their commercial importance because obviously they you know, they, they created much of the economy upon which the, you know, these you know, big nation states existed. And the peasant majority, as I said, uh, they wanted more than simply servitude and taxation that didn't really benefit them. Yeah. And uh, yeah, as I said before, you know, this is something which we can probably say is quite similar to today. Don't you think? Yes. In some of the background reading I did, I found it interesting to read that it was um, well, it's, it's it's held to be by historians to be one of the, if not the main reason for both the French Revolution and the 
and the American Revolution that uh, the vast, of majority, vast majority of people were not allowed to participate democratically in the decisions that led up to taxation, for instance. Mm. Um, so the, the burden of tax laid upon in France was, uh, I write the number of 98% of the people without there being uh, yeah, any sort of representation in the, in the decision-making process. Yeah. So I think you can um, see a clear causality here in uh, the, the voice to participate, advocating for more uh, part democratic participation. Um, yeah, it's rooted in in the will to to just decide upon how much um, taxation is uh, burdened upon on mm. you. No, yeah. um, I mean, not everything comes down to money, clearly, um, but you know, a, a lot of the ways in which people assess the quality of, of their lives uh, does reflect uh, the ability to spend, the ability to perhaps save, the, the, the ability to be free of burden, at least on a financial level. And clearly in the days before the French Revolution, you know, people were not in a condition where they were free of financial burden. And in many ways, looking at modern society where uh, in 2008 you had the, um, the, the global financial crisis and in 2020 we've had obviously corona, uh, two huge um, impactful events which have left the, the economy uh, globally teetering on the brink in some cases. Um, we again find ourselves confronted by a situation that people are a bit worried looking at the, at the future that lies ahead of them. Um, but we're nowhere near, thankfully I might add, a state of revolution. Would you agree with that or do you see things differently? I think the concept of revolution as a, let's say, um, as a historic event of, of a short-term uh, process, yeah, revolutionizing the system should be rethought of as something that is, has become more, um, you say, uh, long, a long, long-term development. And I think process revolution takes place if it does revolutionary thinking on, in a more subtle and complex way. For Whereas in, in the period that you started this conversation with, in the eight, late 18th century, there were major upheavals and revolutionary actions connected to a lot of violence in the case of the French Revolution and the American Revolution. And therefore the term has been, um, the term revolution has been very, very much uh, defined by the first uh, appearances or major appearances in time, French and the American Revolution, of course, are not the first revolutions to take place, um, but we do still find uh, revolutionary thinking and revolutionary um, processes taking place, only it is not so obvious, they're not mm. so recognized. I would say. Mm. Um, I mean, at the time of the, the French Revolution in, in Britain, there was uh, you know, largely uh, people, were, especially politicians, obviously, were against the, the, the French Revolution, the way that it came about, which is not surprising in any way. Uh, I've heard one historian say, actually, that because of the French Revolution, the reforms that were going to be perhaps introduced in Britain uh, for um, increasing uh, certain rights provisions for more people uh, were delayed by 40 years purely because of the distasteful way that the revolution developed in France. Uh, mm. So from a British perspective, it actually pushed back the development and progress of uh, the introduction of certain rights in, in Britain. Um, but people yeah. were obviously, they, they viewed the revolution in, in a horrific way because of the violence that took place. And this is of, often overlooked. So I'm, I'm glad that you, you introduced that because um, you know, we, we should not 
forget the fact that even though people consider the French Revolution and these wonderful, you know, these terms and what they represented and the, the positive perhaps effect that they had on introducing democracy and um, human rights, perhaps eventually um, around Europe and in, you know, in some cases other parts of the globe, uh, it came at a huge cost and in many cases a very barbaric way of pushing mm. that agenda forward. Yes. Um, how shall I start? Yes, it is. In fact, um, as you as you said, now the revolutionary process in France might have served in Britain and other places uh, in the, in the opposite way that I indicated, in the sense that it um, prolonged the time of, um, in fact, introduced revolutionary reforms and so I think there is a balance uh, that you can observe um, when looking back historically between periods in time where, where changes took place in a very past and uh, in that sense revolutionary way like in the French Revolution and then there are um, times where this has served as a kind of yeah um, negative example and therefore um, postponed certain changes in other areas. But I, I would try to connect the happenings in the, the late 18th century to the period of enlightenment as you did uh, in your first introductory words and say that the, the enlightenment period which is said to have started around 700 um, created such uh, oh, during all this time because we're talking about the late 18th century um, there was so much that accumulated uh, in terms of revolutionary potential that it was like a velvet uh, not holding uh, uh, the pressure anymore then bursting in some way uh, in America and French, I would say in this example, limited maybe to the French Revolution, um, and, and led to this, to this to these past uh, changes that went, uh, were then to be turned back in some way, right, after the French Revolution and the Counter-Revolution and Napoleon and so on. Um, so it was also in France itself that the revolution may have taken to place when looking back, uh, historically may have taken place to past for things to, to balance out a bit mm. and I would say that by now we have arrived uh, in modern times at a time where revolutionary processes at least in Europe at least in what is now considered a stronghold of democracy cannot be associated uh, with this past and um, revolutionary in that sense um, turnover of things mm. because of yeah. because of many reasons, uh, of course, because we have established some democratic um, decision-making processes after many wars, and now you mentioned the financial crisis and uh, what was um, yeah, what was. Corona. Say, yeah, from from that period, uh, in, in the how how this created the uh, a birth for a potential for more and the demand for more revolutionary um, changes in the in the realm of uh, the financial world of restructuring the financial world, the system reforming uh, the system at the point in time where already. Uh, again, let's if, if we look at Europe, we had uh, a lot of democratic and um, yeah, judicial and financial reforms uh, already had taken place. So there was already there's already a body of um, institutions and rules that uh, is on the surface democratic, representing. Uh, what is now called the representative democracy, right? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is interesting, and I think we're probably going to go backwards and forwards quite a bit um, you know, over our next few exchanges with regards to this, because when you talk about the association of the of modern uh, Europe and the European Union um, to the events that have taken place uh, over the the creation uh, of these identities and this this sort of superpower that is the European Union. Um, there have obviously been you know, wars. Uh, there have also been you know, very tragic uh, colonial exercises and um, expansionist policies which have treated other parts of the world uh, horribly with disdain, with disrespect. Um, and a part of modern modern Europe, and this also includes Britain and the USA, of course, was based upon the you know, the servitude, uh, the slave trade, and the the subjugation of a lot of these peoples to uh, enrichment of the few. <coughs> so, you know, we are talking obviously about the the French Revolution, um, but you know, democracy was as a concept focused on only. European countries, and they didn't care about the usurpation mm. of uh, other areas. So, you know, I think we should also put this into the, the the debate purely to say that it has not been forgotten about, at least by us, um, mm. and there should be a reckoning of some great description um, to the atrocities committed by European powers in in Africa, in in Asia, and uh, other areas as well, of course. South America, for example. Yes, this is an, an interesting observation to think of um, the development of democracy in Europe, but also in the United States, as a as a development that was also in some way dependent or done on the back of uh, structures that were not democratic on on and not at all just and unfair and. Uh, based upon the idea of liberty and justice on the global level. So you depended somehow on the system granting uh, and, and guaranteeing a certain material standard uh, for Europe and the United States um, that, was, that was nurtured by structures, colonial structures and so on, trade uh, imbalance and trade. Uh, uh, and and then so far were done was done in the back on the back of uh, other people. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's still, so and it's still it's still nowadays. I mean, this is observation that you can uh, make about the system today. Well, you see what's happening now in let's say Myanmar. Just uh, take a look at the at the um, current uh, um, events on the political uh, global level. So uh, we have. Re- really revolutionary events still going on in, in some places in the world while yeah. we have the luxury let's say to have a revolution uh, being it's distributed on a long on a, on a long-term uh, temporary scale in, in, in Europe for instance mm. Yeah, and, and actually, to be honest, what you say is completely correct in that there are still elements of the slave trade, albeit under the, the guise or um, this sort of um, fake title of commerce, uh, because cocoa production, for example, in Africa is still based upon uh, slavery um, in everything but name and um, also child labor. And, you know, a lot of the companies that benefit from this um, do not really want to address the issue. But a court case currently underway in the USA, hopefully, uh, will uh, draw at least further attention to that. And in in some cases, perhaps some kind of um, punitive measures towards the, the organizations involved. But it's, I mean, the question that I have to then ask, right, because I also wanted to talk about socialism and so on but we, you know, we could put that a little bit perhaps to one side because socialism is worthy of uh, a conversation or, you know, on its own um, yeah. but this sense of democracy because um, after events in the USA uh, with um, the former president being critical of the election in November 
Um, obviously, as you said as well, what is happening in Myanmar? So the military there also said that the the elections that took place uh, were were not actually correct, that there was corruption involved, that they uh, some way uh, cheated the system and so on. Um, how valuable is is democracy then to a lot of the democratic countries around the world? Because you know, if if um, the Republican Party can stand by a former president who refuses to accept the result of democratic mm-hmm. elections, where does that actually leave their value for democracy? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a question that is uh, very important to raise when trying to analyze what has been happening in the United States in the last four years under the rule of Trump. And you can say under the rule of Trump because he was treating democracy and all the uh, the holy institutions institutions of democracy uh, with total disdain, of course. Mm. And uh, in, in that regard, it's, it's easy for us uh, Europeans uh, who tend to look at the United States, uh, I mean, in terms of politics and democracy now, let's say the, the European um, democratic theorists, they look at there and of course do not take USA uh, seriously or as an example for democracy anymore because of what is happening and this is important to raise the question uh, whether the system in uh, in the United States can in fact still be called a democracy a lot of people have uh, questioned this also intellectuals like Chomsky for instance mm-hmm. um, yeah doesn't talk about the representative democracy uh, anymore when talking about the United States. It's a two-party system that is apparently functioning in a way that it's serving the purpose, uh, the, the interests of very few uh, people and above all maybe corporations and those who um, finance politics. So the, this all culminated, if you want, symbolically in, uh, in the uh, attack or whatever you want to call it on the, um, not on the White House. On, on the, the Capitol. On the Capitol as a symbol of uh, democracy, a very important symbol of democracy. But this was a culmination point of the disdain that is uh, manifested itself. For, for democracy in the way that it's functioning now. It was, mm. it was brought about by a few people, most of with whom apparently belong to the American right or the, to the um, to groups. You've discussed this, I think, with uh, your American friend mm. uh, already in, in more detail uh, with this QAnon followers and those people who uh, uh, well, yeah, the proud whom, boys and so on. Yeah, there's a strong appeal in conspiracy theories and in their explanatory um, uh, potential, or not potential, but in, in the narratives uh, mm. that, that try to make up a totally new story. Um, so you can also think of it, of this culmination, uh, the storm, on the capital as a manifestation of deep distrust with democracy, articulated by uh, a certain, for sure, a certain very, uh, still hopefully small fraction of, of society in this strong way, but articulate also in representation of something that is present in people's minds and perception of American democracy, at least, uh, on a more, um, yeah, nationwide and maybe global level, too. Yeah, I mean, the the, the American system, I mean, I'm loath to be too too openly critical of it without somebody uh, here who is far more aware of uh, the way that the system uh, has come about and therefore, you know, more capable of defending the system. Because I I think there are certain elements of the system which, um, you know, 
would deserve to have uh, you know better defense than than what we would be able to put up but um if we move it back to you know, to some of the some of the similarities yeah so um what happened in the french revolution you had lots of people through the streets um picking up on anybody who they considered to, to be either a royalist or a traitor and well, they identified them as traitors and these people were summarily killed um and mm-hmm. you know i mean to to bring this to bring examples of this forward you could look at mccarthyism in the way that uh, senator mccarthy you know in his witch hunts uh, in trying to identify communists how they they didn't necessarily kill people but essentially they they destroyed their lives they destroyed the reputations of these people and uh, the, the mob that entered the capital they yeah, they were also looking for traitors. You know, they highlighted Mike Pence. They had the um, um, the, the rope ready to to hang him up. Um, you know, so there are similarities there with mm. how certain kinds of people approached you know, what they wanted to to create or call their revolution. And the one of the interesting things about this is in the French Revolution, you're talking about people who would today be classed as leftists. Um, but obviously, what happened in in Washington, perhaps, you know, definitely was you know conducted by uh, people from the right. Uh, some would say extreme right, but you know, from the right anyway. Um, isn't it interesting to see how uh, this has changed over time? So, who essentially wants to defend democracy, and is it actually democracy that they want to defend? Or is it their own belief structure, which they feel, regardless of the majority, should be defended? Mm. Well, in the case of the storm on the Capitol that took place uh, lately, um, I, I, I'm, I would certainly say that there is a similarity uh, with the French Revolution in terms of the use of violence. They had no problem in using violence and were ready to go far, as it seems, as, as they did, were in fact and luckily capable of. But I'm not so sure if you can really make a point for um, this being an expression, what happened in November in, in, the, in Washington being an expression of, um, or an articulation of the voice calling for more democracy when when seeing the images and and seeing who was involved in it. Um, mm. uh, you could you could say this on a more more subtle level, in the sense that this there's apparent uh, uh, obvious um, distrust in democratic institutions or in the system itself. When you want if you want to compare it with the French Revolution, there's um, Uncontent uh, that manifests in a brutal and very, very strong way. This is the similarity. Mm-hmm. But I think those advocating, those storming the capital, were if you had, or if you're, in so much as you were able to um, trace back their motives, motivation, uh, you would not find many of them um, making a, a clear stand, a point for democracy or more participation and so on this this you could certainly rather do when uh, looking back and trying imagining how people who were involved in all these revolutionary upheavals would have explained their actions their their point would have been a much more let's say justifiable in the sense that uh, it was clearly in my view an expression uh, for manifestation for more uh, participation mm. in many ways. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sorry, please continue. No, no, I just wanted to close by saying that uh, I find it hard to make a, uh, an immediate analysis of what's been happening in the United States in, uh, in November 2020 in the in the context of uh, a sincere um, search and 
and fight I think for democracy from the standpoint of the global community let's say. Mm. Um, I mean is, is democracy really that big a deal yeah as in you know, when you look at some of the you know, some of the great movies, for example, which are in some ways movies and TV series at the moment, are quite representative of uh, societal belief structures about the way that we live our lives, about the language that mm-hmm. we use. They, they often find themselves into the books that are written in nowadays, the, the movies that are created and so on, the various kinds of media. You could even, um, I suppose, say that um, or perhaps before modern times, but even newspapers were very expressive of the, the common voice. Maybe not so now, but more so in the past. Um, do you think perhaps uh, there is a line of thought where you would say um, you know, democracy isn't really what people think it to be? Because you know, so much has been done in the name of democracy. So many people have been um, have been killed. So many other cultures have been put down in the name of democracy. And mm-hmm. You know, we've also found propagated this idea of national security, almost as though this is, you know, one of the Ten Commandments. Um, Mm. And, you know, how long can we really continue to justify these kinds of actions in the interest of democracy and the national interest? Well, I'm, I would I would start trying to answer um, respond to this question by by looking at it from the perspective of of a citizen uh, on the one side in the in the late 18th century on the other hand uh, nowadays we mm. find a big difference in in terms of uh, information, the availability of information, whereas in that period of time back then, there was apparently a lack of information, a lack of information that um, in the end explains how and why people, for us, this has always been a difficult thing for me to understand uh, for, for me as a person who was raised uh, in a democratic system, let's, let's, let's call it, let's dare to call it like this, mm. to understand how people were subjugated in this way and still were ready to um, to accept this for such a long time, period of time. And I think it's uh, explicable, uh, it's understandable when when considering how little in, and <coughs> sorry information was available for all all throughout history to people and for that matter people in the lack of knowledge about certain things needed uh, the, uh, needed very obvious ex- um, manifestations of unjustice, unjust proceedings like the tax fixation system in the late 18th century. I mean the United States were also um, the liberation the war for in the Independence took place also because of, uh, of the fact that they were trying to emancipate themselves from uh, the, the taxation system imposed by the British rulers. Mm-hmm. So um, this was a very obvious claim, some, something that people, in spite of the lack of information, could be uh, could identify with. So um, we have a major change in that regard, in the sense that now information is available on a much bigger scale, even so much so that there is a, a flood of, uh, of information uh, that that makes it very hard for a citizen to discern what is a fact and from what is just a claim, what is speculation, to discern uh, what is right and not in any of the so-called conspiracy theories, uh, a demand for people you can, in fact, um, analyze and 
explain what has been happening in the United States in the last months in, uh, in, in these terms, saying that people, this is an expression uh, for the needs of, for some new narrative, for some new um, symbolic uh, narratives, understanding of, of, of the system, of oneself in the system, one's own role. So we have a different, uh, very different um, situation nowadays regarding this. And nowadays, it's the flood of information that makes people doubt and, and, and makes them distrust in the in the system. And the United and the uh, the voice that unfortunately has been articulating this over and over again for, throughout the last four years. He was capable of blurring this uh, this line of uh, um, separation from facts, of facts, and uh, and the rest, and has been creating a lot of um, confusion in people's minds. Um, and yes, I'm sorry, I forgot to uh, the um, the connection to the question that you um, you raised. But my point here is that. Mm. that we have a, a new system in, in, in terms of technology and information that is now has now arrived at the point in time in the last, let's say, decade, but even you can say that the last years have been very um, important in that regard. And there's more and more, more um, information about political things, about anything that is connected to how our political financial systems work that is making people distrust in the narratives that has been have been put in place by by the ruling elite because we still have ruling elites of course and there's the this has been articulated in a very um, in a very violent form in, 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 with a storm on the capital Mm. Um, but do you think that going forward we can continue to justify uh, a lot of the things that we do by saying that we stand for democracy because whose democracy is it that we actually stand for you know which voices are there which we listen to well, we respect and protect I think the, the, the demand for more democracy as expression of uh, natural mm, needs of, uh, of people to emancipate themselves from any sort of rule over them. And I, I think so as, as maybe as the idealist that you uh, depicted me, but um, I think that this is a, this is a, uh, it's a constant uh, in human history, uh, because it is uh, one in, in human psychology, the, the need to emancipate oneself from any sort of rule. And um, connecting this to what I've just said, uh, flooding or with information and so on, this has uh, created a major, um, a major distrust in what has been told to us about how representative democracy works uh, in European countries, uh, but also in the United States. Um, and then I think any uh, any movement that uh, makes a point for more democracy and tries to propose politics that can bring about more democracy will, at the moment, will always be um, influenced by the idea of uh, by this need or expression of this need of, uh, for emancipation, because we should not um, be, we should never be happy with what is uh, with has, what has been uh, achieved without looking forward and trying to change what has not been achieved. So democracy in the in, in this idealistic sense, um, development of true democracy will still require a lot of time, decades, if not centuries, to arrive at the point where we can be more happy about, where you can really think that your voice 
is being heard more or other than just uh, articulated in a four, uh, every four years when voting for a political party. Think about the two-party systems in, in the United States, but also I think you can say this about, uh, about Britain, that you have uh, basically two-party systems, so the democratic um, participation at the moment is still limited to uh, reiterating the this 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 um yeah, this participation just through a vote that you give. It's, mm. There's not much participation in this, so we will still have, and for a long time we should still have a lot uh, of uh, articulations of this need for more emancipation, for more participation. Mm. And who does this from a sincere perspective, from a sincere, uh, or as an expression of a sincere will for more participation, is, has always got the right to demand this. Uh, the question is just how, how this um, can be coordinated from the perspective of a, of a citizen, whichever movement you are involved, uh, how it is that you want to change the system, uh, how you want to bring about changes in the judicial uh, uh, electoral um, system, for instance. There are many ways to achieve this, but trusting on democratic institutions themselves to change uh, in a natural, spontaneous way will not be enough. There must be this uh, communication, this interaction between those who vote and those who are voting between uh, the citizen and the state apparatus. It must be, there must be more, and not only reiterated and uh, repeated in, in uh, every four years through a vote, there must be more interaction on a continuous level uh, between institutions and, and the people. Do, do you think that, for example, um, it should become a part of the work of any democratic country that they should not seek automatically to export democracy as a system, as a ruling system uh, or form of governance, but they should seek to export respect as a form of uh, valuing the work and produce or you know of of people of workers in other countries where perhaps they don't necessarily benefit from uh, the same kind of democracy that we enjoy in in the European Union. Do you think this would perhaps be a better, more accurate reflection of exactly how democratic we are by doing yes. that kind of service? Yes, exactly, definitely. It's, uh, democracy is nothing that you can and emancipation in that sense is nothing that you can impose on other countries as has been the tradition of the United States uh, with regards to their uh, foreign policies. Mm. Whatever they've sold as democracy that they want to bring about and uh, uh, and create in other countries, it's just uh, an etiquette, it's just a, a false um, belief of having arrived at the point point in time where you can talk about something like democracy, which is ridiculous when you uh, really try to uh, um, shed a light on how democracy uh, works in the, in the United States. So it has been uh, exported also through force and violence and wars and coup d'etats and all this, um, you know, parting from, from the idea that one has a Arrived at at the uh, yeah quite final um, version of democracy as as depicted or as as Fukuyama, for instance, said when he uh, proposed the idea of having arrived at the end of time. In that sense, I think this idea was from the start so wrong, and uh, but was only he is not the, let's say to be black for that he was just uh, a voice and expression of many people's beliefs and especially I'm afraid to say of many Americans who have this uh, this pride this unreflected 
pride in their system and do do not have um, the perspective, uh, do not have the respect that you just uh, suggested for how things have evolved and will evolve and how things should evolve in a country. Instead of using violence and force and regarding oneself as the masters of democracy, one should use uh, one should try to um, use dialogue with any country where you um, try to yeah, impose or influence the, the system. Mm. Yeah, um, it's also interesting. I mean, just to make a point, when people do listen to to this, it seems like uh, there's a lot of uh, America bashing going on from us both. And um, I, I don't think that we should take uh, the USA to be the only bad entity in this. Um, I think all of the criticisms that we've extended to the USA, we should also extend to um, essentially the European colonial powers. Uh, that yeah. were and that have become you know, members of the European Union today. And uh, I should also uh, say that uh, a few years ago, or two years ago, I think it was, I read uh, an article from a, an African leader who was participating in uh, negotiations between uh, the European Union and leaders of Africa as to how to go forward with um, negotiations, trade agreements, and so on. And uh, the rep- the, Afri- the particular African representative had been interviewed. I can't remember his name. Um, he said that uh, you know, until the European Union sits at a table with African leaders and accepts and recognizes them as equal participants in the negotiating process, they can never really make the claim to say that they are completely respectful of the status of uh, their partners. Because yeah. uh, he made the claim uh, that the European Union, the leaders or representatives of the European Union, when they sat at that negotiating table with the African leaders, they were still looking down their noses. And it was as though they were still saying to them, you have to accept whatever deal we put on the table because this is us and you are you. Um, and um, you know, he was he said that he was extremely dismayed uh, by this view or by this impression that he'd been given so uh you know just to say that uh, you know that the europeans uh, the countries that uh, you know we live in are not the heroes of this particular conversation um and that there are also elements you know very very many and strong elements uh, of our societies that should also be considered um uh, in need of improvement no this is this is uh, certain of course if I talked in this way about the Americans' approach to this, I was uh, I intended or I had in mind the uh, the politics. And of course, I mean not the not American standpoint in general, or let alone by by the citizens. So uh, it, it was just for me the most blatant example because the United States have in fact been involved. Many of these so-called uh, democratization processes in the in in other countries. Most so, recently, um, of course. And more recently, and with more with all their global power, uh, back with military power and so on. Um, but the, the point that you are making, or the, what you are referring to, with regards to also European um, states' uh, lack of of respect and dialogue with, for instance, African um, states, for me, at the moment, takes takes more place in the realm of uh, economics, of world trade and so on. And uh, interestingly enough, I think it was yesterday that a Nigerian woman was voted head of uh, WTO, which is a good sign in this regard, of course. Mm-hmm. And this... Uh, this um, this the realm of, of world trade and so on it's of course very important in that matter because uh structurally it's the lack and the the, the flaws in the economic global system that uh perpetuate uh, the deficiencies there might be in any other country uh of the world that is not considered to be the first part of the first world uh and let alone a democracy and so on. So this is a very uh, important field. 
but when uh, when looking what has been the looking at what has been the um, um, the attempts of European and Western countries to uh, to give aid uh, or to support in some way uh, what are really um, institutional reforms of reforms uh, of, of taking place in the realm of institutions, democracy, vote, uh, electoral systems, and so on. Uh, it is more it is more subtle uh, how how this colonial arrogance, if you want to call it like this, uh, takes place in that matter. We have a lot of organizations and the so-called, is it called development uh, aid in English? The, um, the mm -hmm. Sustainable development goals. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, it takes place on a more subtle level if you want to analyze this in, a, in terms of um, uh, colonial arrogance taking place in this realm too, because we have, we do in fact have good initiatives on the global level, uh, but also there is uh, a lot of criticism that you can make uh, on how they try to um, influence the yeah, the establishment of, of structures and institutions in, in certain countries, in many ways also serving the interest of, uh, of global trade of, in the eyes of, of European and Western parties. Mm. Um, and yeah, just uh, yeah, sort of a couple sort of general references back to you know, the influence of, of the uh, the French Revolution. Just a, a, on a, in the first instance, a very quick question: Do you think that the the French Revolution had a positive effect on European politics? Um, I mean, in the when looking back, one can always say that. Whatever took place in history has uh, had its role in the development of human history of, in this uh, regard in, of, of, um, of democracy and uh, also certain importance being as a, as a good or bad example. But uh, if you want to, let's say, focus on the immediate effects, uh, one, would, one would have to answer it doesn't seem to have uh, had such a good um long-lasting influence when you think about how Napoleon took over power and how many things were reversed against uh, against what had been the motives, uh, the motivation of, <coughs> of those um, involved in the revolution. Yeah. But um, I would say one has to look, if you do want to in, have a more wider historical perspective on this, there's definitely many things uh, that are um, that have had long-lasting effects on the development of uh, democracies. That uh, uh, French Revolution was just uh, a very important symbolic uh, expression of this um, of this development towards more participation towards more um, democracy and. Um, the the fact that the National Assembly, I, I, when reading a bit of background information uh, leading up to our conversation, I was reading about the, how in the, it was called Estates General in France, mm -hmm. uh, three, three estates were represented, had been summoned uh, in, I think it was 1780, uh, I don't know, something, uh, for the first time in 200 years, when mm -hmm. the third so-called the state, the 98% of, of, of the population that I was referring to, had just one vote vis-à-vis uh, -vis one vote of the cler clerus and one, one vote of the uh, nobility. So mm. the third state, this 98% um, declared themselves the National Assembly. This is a very uh, innovative and new form of expressing this emancipatory are neat and it's, it has to be looked at as a symbolic thing also that has been an example for many uh, movements both in France itself uh, when you think if you want to look now uh, take a small uh, a short look into the 19th century you have you have what happened in the 
70s of the 19th century in Paris, for instance, how this can be seen as a continuation of this process, only interrupted by time and power. Mm. Um, but also as on a more global level, I mean, the French Revolution is not uh, not without the cause, not without reason, uh, regarded as a very important uh, event in the history of democratic development. development. Mm. Mm -hmm. Okay, all right. Um, and yeah, w one other question then uh, with regards more to um, the European Union. So uh, after the uh, election of President Trump in 2016, uh, which followed so closely uh, on the heels of uh, the decision of the United Kingdom to leave the European Union in the referendum, um, Emmanuel Macron said that uh, it is time for the European Union to uh, look at itself to find solutions. I think also that Mrs. Merkel has also tried to make the European Union far more uh, self-sufficient, far more self-driven, far more autonomous in its decision-making. Do you think this is perhaps in the long term the right way to go for the European Union? Or do you still believe that perhaps pursuing a globalist United Nations style organization is actually uh, more deserving of the support of the European Union? Well, if you, uh, if you pose this question with regards to, uh, yeah, let's say, emancipation from the, from the power of, of the United States in all this global uh, context, uh, I think it is it is good, it is necessary to emancipate as a European Union, emancipate oneself from, uh, I never really understood, to be honest, where, uh, why, why it was considered as absolutely necessary to always um, be in line with the politi global politics of the United States. For, for that matter, I would say it's important to put uh, um, to, um, to make one's own decisions, uh, also on the for, uh, in the realm of foreign policies. But if you want to talk about uh, the United Nations, for instance, uh, I think one should one should look at it in a diff bit different matter because the United Nations, in fact, are could be in, in a very important and uh, democratic institution uh, organization uh, if, if, if they had more uh, competencies more, more more power in a good sense there they were not a, a toothless tiger we say in German yeah toothless yeah uh, toothless tiger um, so there should be more uh, integration into into organizations like this dealing with certain global topics, but as long as this doesn't happen because it's blocked by vetoes and so on, um, one the European Union should, in fact, also make it clear that when, when looking at the global level and thinking uh, responsibly of how, how uh, uh, an organization of state that consider themselves as a stronghold of democracy should bring about the idea of democracy. Should advocate for anything that is leading up, leading up to more democracy. Then, in that regard, you should emancipate yourself from what has been the foreign policy in that regard from uh, by by the United States. For instance. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Cool. I mean, yeah, so many questions remain uh, for us to to talk about. Uh, as we sort of said at the beginning, I also wanted to, to touch on socialism as a, as, a, as an idea, ideology, as a concept. Um, but then there's also the uh, discussion of European federalism. Um, then there is the you know, the idea of you know what is essentially behind uh, conservatism and capitalism and the forces that are um, dominant at the moment in the way in which our economies are run. Uh, you know, these are you know, topics that we you know, we're going to have to return to um, and analyze uh, in greater depth on an individual basis. Uh, Alvaro.
Grazie mille, um, mi fa piacere come sempre. Um, it's always great to sit down and have an opportunity to, to talk about these things with you. Um, yeah, do you have any sort of yeah, final thoughts on the issue? Any, any closing remarks? You know, I just, I just noticed that I've been talking a lot and you, uh, you act more as a moderator and uh, raise the questions and the interesting questions, but next time I'll try to... Uh, incorporate your uh, standpoints, your views on these topics and your perspective from a Brit Armenian, whatever you consider yourself, uh, <laughs> on, on, uh, on things that uh, I've been commenting on too much without, uh, the, yeah, without including you enough. No, no, it's fine. Uh, absolutely. Please feel free to do so. Challenge me. Um, and yeah, make me also express an opinion. Sometimes you, you're probably I right. I, I, yeah, I, I do, you know, sit down and I'll ask other people for their thoughts and, and don't express myself enough. And it's, uh, yeah, I, sh I should be more uh, opinionated. So thanks. I will, uh, I will try to, to have a, an eye on this next time. Good. Good, and uh, I will make sure to prepare myself uh, accordingly. Um, okay, so thank you again, and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll let you know pleasure. when this goes up. Yeah, all the best. Ciao. All the best. Ciao.